0: Finishing up our little series in Psalm 37 this evening, Psalm 37. Eric Carl, the author of the classic kids' book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, has a less well-known book called The Tiny Seed. In it, there's a bunch of seeds that are blowing on the wind, and the tiny seed seems like it's in danger of missing out on the kind of success a seed is looking for other seeds are blowing faster and higher. Some of them land on mountains. Some fly up high toward the sun. Some of them plant and start to grow more quickly than the tiny seed. Though the tiny seed does avoid some of the dangers that the other seeds fall into, it seems like it may not sprout and grow at all. But finally, it takes root and grows into the tallest, most beautiful flower anyone has ever seen. And we're told that people come from far and near to take a look at this magnificent flower and enjoy its beauty. Now, some of the images and the themes in the tiny seed are not unlike what we find in Psalm 37. It's a song about the true and lasting success of a godly life. It's a song about pursuing ultimate things rather than fleeting things. And it's a song where we see a contrast between people who seem great from one perspective but in reality are headed towards destruction. And David even uses a number of garden-like images, grass, flower, trees. In this wisdom psalm, David has been speaking to us about living out day-to-day goodness He's been speaking about the faithfulness of God. He's been speaking about the glorious inheritance that's waiting for believers in the life to come. It's a great little song. And as the song comes to a close, David will encourage us that though we may face attack or trouble of all sorts, the best is yet to come. All will be made right again. And along the way, we can find strength and shelter in our Lord who rescues his people as he continues to lift us and grow us into beautiful examples of his grace for the world to come and see, like the stars in the heavens shining his glory. And so we're going to begin at verse 32 and see to the end of the rest of the song. It says there, the wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. In previous verses, we talked about how those who are not believers, whether they are good-natured towards you or not, are in fact held captive by the devil in order to do his will. There really is a struggle between good and evil playing out in the world around us. Now, don't worry, the victory has been won. Uh, the devil is not an equal force to God or Jesus or anything like that, he's a created being, he's an angel. Uh, But there is a struggle between good and evil. Evil is fighting hard against God's good. Satan has no plan to go quietly into the night. And uh, you can read through the Bible, you can read through human history and see uh, the kinds of things he likes to do on his way down to the lake of fire. If you're not being actively attacked tonight... We still learn something here from verse 32, and that's that the unbelieving world is observing your life. You and I are being watched. And there are two important considerations a Christian should keep in mind in light of this knowledge. The first consideration is evangelistic. My life is being watched, and so that is automatically an opportunity for me to demonstrate to the world that God is real and that God is alive and that He actually works in the lives of His people. You know, uh, there's a very big difference between biblical Christianity and the other religions of the world. Uh, If you're a Buddhist, Buddha does not live inside of you. Uh, Buddha's no longer alive. Uh, You know, he's not working in your life. It is a philosophy that, well, if I deny myself and if I attempt a certain, maybe karma or maybe these certain things will work out, And the religions of man are all about, if I work hard enough, if I try hard enough, if I sort of hurt myself enough, maybe some mysterious scales in the sky will tip in my favor and I'll be found worthy of whatever's waiting on the other side. But biblical Christianity is completely different. Biblical Christianity says, okay, the God of heaven and earth is really alive and he's a person and he has power and he lives inside of his people and he works through them and he does things in their lives and he intervenes in human reality and he is working all over the world in all sorts of different ways. And if I'm being watched, then that's an evangelistic opportunity. When people look at me, they should see the wonder of God and the mysteries of God. When people observe a Christian's life, the goal is that they see God's love and his holiness and his peace and his joy. The goal is not that they simply see someone who is relatively more moral than the criminal in jail. Does that make sense? The goal isn't that, well, they don't act like a murderer or they don't act like Charles Manson or they don't act like this person or that person. They're somewhat more moral. The goal of our uh, Christianity, the goal of our Christian testimony isn't that people just know what we're against either and what we're mad about, all the things we're upset about. The goal of our Christian testimony out in the world who is watching us, the goal is that people look at us and have to come to the conclusion that God actually exists. These people talk about God and knowing him and loving him and learning about him, and it seems like he actually exists and that he actually has the transformative power that he claims to have. Jesus said the goal of our Christian witness is that people take a look at our lives and glorify the Father in heaven because of what they see. And so we wanna consider the evangelistic aspect of the fact that our lives are being watched. But there's a second thing to keep in mind here, and, and the fact that our lives are being watched means that there should be an evaluation in our own hearts as well. Is that maturing righteousness that the Bible talks about really happening in my life? Am I progressing in my Christianity, am I progressing in my relationship with the Lord? Am I in communion with the Lord? The things that God says we should expect to see as a regular part of Christian life, spiritual fruit, all these different things, do I actually see that? Or is it all sort of just like, remember when you were in you know, high school and you were taking the, the book portion of driver's ed? Here's what you should do, and everybody's like, well, I don't need to know any of that, you know? Here's a good one, for example. Maybe they've changed it. I don't know. But when I was going through all of that in school and we we're going through the book, the rule was when you come to a stop sign, how long are you supposed to, according to the book, stop fully? Five, five seconds is what they taught me. One, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, one. No one in the history of the world has stopped for five seconds at a stop sign, right? And so, but that's not the way we should approach Christianity, where we read the Bible and say, well, here's how the Bible describes a Christian and a Christian's thought life and a Christian's behavior and a Christian's attitudes and all of those sorts of things. Well, that's just stopping at a stop sign for five seconds. I don't really need to do that. It's not really real life, right? And so there should be an evaluation here that I take a look at my own life as well and say, okay, well, is this righteousness that God is forming in me and revealing in me, is that actually at work in my life? The Bible talks about God's people being full of love and full of selflessness and full of generosity and full of forgiveness, that they're full of peace and that they have answers for the hard questions of life. Is that true of me in any sense? Not perfectly, of course, but am I growing in these things? Knowing that the world is watching, and that in Jesus' mind, we are meant to shine like a light in the pitch black dark. Okay, how's the lamp of my life doing? Uh, in my garage, I've got some old you know, fluorescent tubes, the big ones that you can't really find anymore. And when they slowly start dying, they, they usually, those fluorescent tubes, they don't die all at once, right? You kind of kick them on, they're like, and they, for a while, they kind of glow for a little bit. And then the next time you come in there, they, they, like, struggle turning on. And then finally, there's just on the edges, right, there's, like, a little bit of a glow until they're finally dead. And so the Psalms and other passages like this, they invite us to evaluate ourselves and say, okay, what's the bulb of my life look like right now? You know, how many lumens am I giving off? Jesus said, hey, you're the light of the world, and you're supposed to go out and shine with the power of the gospel, And Jesus said, I've installed all of this into you so that you can go out and do the things that I did so that my everlasting life will overflow you. And all of these incredible descriptors that go way beyond, you know, a minimal idea. And so it's just a good opportunity for us to sort of take stock in our own lives and say, okay, I want to be evangelistic when people are watching me, but I also want to just evaluate what's going on. Am I seeing these righteous things that David's talking about? Do I see them forming in my life? Verse 33, the Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. When it says the Lord will not do these things, it means never, ever, ever. If you look at like the Septuagint, it'll break it down word by word. It says just never, ever, never, ever will God do that. Because our God is a God who's ready to save. He's mighty to save. And we're reminded here that he is the ultimate judge over all things. This gets talked a lot about in our culture right now, right? These court decisions happen at the you know uh, municipal level or the state level. And then we say, okay, yeah, but... Let's see what the Supreme Court has to say because they're the final say, right? That's the idea. Well, God is the ultimate judge over all things. God's people may be brought into lower earthly courts, but no matter what, we can always appeal to the court of heaven and know that we will be delivered. In the end, no matter what we may suffer, we won't be left in the hand of our enemies, we won't be left in the grave, we won't be left in the sway of sin, we won't be left in our suffering, God will fully, finally rescue us out of them all, one way or another, whether that means rescuing us From those circumstances or rescuing us into heaven, the Lord will do that. Verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Waiting on the Lord means to hope with real expectation. There's a difference in how we wait for things, right, depending on what we're waiting for. Uh, If you're, for example, a James Bond fan, right, you know that this is This next movie, I guess, coming up is probably going to be the last one that Daniel Craig's going to do. And so if you're a James Bond fan, you're kind of waiting to see who will be announced as the next actor to play that character, right? But it has absolutely no bearing on your life. It makes absolutely no difference at all. You have some sort of interest, maybe, but it makes no difference at all whether they announce it tomorrow or a year from now. If they announce it's this person or that person, it, it doesn't make any difference in your life. Now, if you are a guest at a surprise party and you're gathered up before the person you're celebrating arrives, you wait differently, right? You wait with expectation because you're going to act a certain way. Certain things are expected of you. You know that they're coming. You know that they're coming soon. You listen and you watch and you keep quiet and you get ready to shout surprise. So two very different kinds of waiting. To wait on the Lord in the Bible is never a passive thing. It's an active thing. It's an active hope. It's a lifestyle and a pattern of behavior. The term can mean that we twist or bind together with the Lord. I like that image. As we wait for his coming, we're to keep his way, David says. That means to carefully observe our walk with him. We're to pay attention to our progress and our preparations for his soon return. Now, I think there's an interesting contrast here, right? Because earlier we saw the wicked are shown, what? Lying in wait to assault the righteous. And now we see the righteous, what are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for God to arrive and to move and to intervene on their behalf. Likewise, the wicked are shown observing the godly. They wanna accuse them, they wanna trap them, they wanna watch for them to slip up. The godly are told to observe their own walk and make adjustments so that they are bright and shining and upright as they go. And so great little contrast there. As we walk, keeping God's way, we're told that the Lord is busy in his work of exalting us as we move toward that inheritance David's been talking about for all these verses. God is a master builder and a master gardener. He's growing each of his people. He's building each of us up. He's lifting us higher and higher and getting us ready for that glorious presentation in heaven where God will bring us with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault, the Bible says. And so we wait for him as he perpetually works toward that goal. This isn't like, Waiting for Godot. Anybody familiar with that play, Waiting for Godot? The idea is that Godot never shows up, and the two guys in the play have this weird conversation about that. But that's not, that's not what it's like when, it, when we're talking about the waiting on the Lord. We're not waiting for some figment of the, of, of the imagination, for some myth that's never gonna happen. The Lord is real, and he's proven himself true, and he really is coming, And he really is coming, not just ultimately in the rapture and the resurrection, right, but he's coming to intervene in our lives today. He wants to interact with you, and he wants to be directing you, and he wants to be using you and working through you. That's what he says in his word. And so we want to be about uh, the business that the Lord is about as we move through life. Verse 35. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. The outward success of the wicked used to bother David when he was younger. A number of his psalms chronicle his talks with God about it. A lot of them just talks about how he's just upset. He's like, Lord, what's up with this? Why are the wicked prospering? It bothered him. Uh, now, we know from an earlier verse in an earlier study, David's an old man and he's sharing the wisdom that he's gleaned from a lifelong uh, uh, devotion to God. And now, you know what, in his old age, looking back and distilling the wisdom of a life lived after the Lord, he's gotten over this issue, right? It doesn't bother him anymore. He, and he doesn't want it to bother us either. In verses one and seven of the song, he says outright, he says, hey, these, this, don't worry about it. Wicked people seeming to prosper, don't worry about it. Don't fret about that. Don't, don't, don't let that fill up your mind and your heart and get all upset about it. As important or imposing as some wicked people may seem from our perspective, in reality, they, from dust they came and to dust they will return. When we first moved into the building here, there were two pretty sizable trees on the grass right out here on the boulevard where the kids play soccer now. If you... Uh, you know, had been playing soccer and were running to score a goal, you would have been knocked down by the tree, big old trees. But the trees got some kind of disease, as I recall, and so they had to be removed. And so the trees that had been imposing and seemed so strong and all of that had taken up all this space, they're just totally gone. And guess what? There's now, there's not even so much as a bump left where they once stood. They're just totally gone, not even remembered. We had to look up if there were two trees or three. We couldn't even Remember? And that's a good image of what David is saying here. He's like, hey, these green, green trees, if you're not following after the Lord, you're just gonna be gone. You're just gonna be taken away. Your life was here and that's going to be destroyed. I'm guessing most of us have never heard of the richest man in history. Anybody have an idea who the richest man in history is or was? Anybody a history buff here? It's not Bill Gates. It's not Jeff Bezos. It's not Solomon. In in fact, the wealth of this guy makes the gates and the Bezos of the world seem sort of puny. His name was Mansa Mullah, the ruler of the Empire of Mali, way back in 1312. They say his fortune was, quote, too vast to be imagined. One professor of history said this about King Mansa after reading sources that talked about him. He says, imagine as much gold as you think a human being could possibly possess and double it. That's what all the accounts of Mansa Mullah are trying to communicate. And what about today? Nobody knows who he is. Nobody cares who he is. He's got nothing left. He's just completely gone. Think about that for a minute. Other than Solomon the richest person in all of history. Nobody even knows his name. His kingdom's gone, his throne is gone. The most rich, the most powerful king over an empire, he's completely forgotten. He has one more appointment left on this earth and that's before the king of kings. And he's gonna stand there, Uh, doesn't matter that he was rich, doesn't matter that he was powerful, he's gonna stand before uh, the great white throne. And he's going to bow his knee and declare, yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's going to be judged. And he's not going to stand in pomp or in power. He's going to stand in guilt and ruin. David says here that the ungodly are like a native green tree or a tree planted in its own soil. That's an important image, an interesting image. When a person sends their roots down into their own soil, into this world, that temporal life, well, that comes with an expiration date. It comes with a a dead date. As we saw in a previous study, the clock is running down to that moment where the righteous are going to be brought into glory and the wicked are going to be judged. And you know what? The godly don't send their roots down into their own soil, into this world, into this life. The godly anchor themselves to the Lord. Paul said in Colossians 2 that we're to be rooted and built up in Christ so that our lives might be anchored onto that which is eternal, There's no expiration date on the Lord's everlasting life, no closing date for heaven. What he gives is forever and ever. While no place will be found for the wicked, David says, we're reminded that there will be found a place for those who believe. What did Jesus Christ say? He said, I'm ascending into heaven so that I might prepare a place for you and that where I am, you might be also. You have an address in heaven if you're a Christian here tonight, an address with a home that is being prepared by Jesus Christ, your creator and savior. He's getting it ready for you, a place carved out, ready for you. It's never going to expire. You're never going to be evicted. It's never going to need a remodel. It's going to be great. Verse 37, mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. Rather than focus on what's what's going on with the wicked uh, in the world or comparing ourselves to them, David says, hey, look, take a look at other righteous people. We're encouraged to watch them and observe their lives. Now, to be blameless here simply means to be free of guilt. That's any believer who's following after the Lord, right? Anybody who's been saved by Jesus Christ, our guilt has been done away with. And upright here just means a person who lives according to the standards set out by God. So David's not saying, well, there are certain special super Christians, and those are really good people, we're lowly serfs down here. <laughs> That's not what's being said. A blameless person or an upright person, any Christian is a blameless and upright person. Now, if you're walking in sin, if you're backslidden, well, then you're not walking upright. But David says, hey, instead of observing the wicked out there and filling your mind with thoughts about them, observe the righteous. Take a look at godly people around you and godly people from history. Study them. You know, we've been furnished with many incredible specimens to examine, whether it was Paul or the other believers in the book of Acts or great men and women of God throughout the centuries. Mark them, measure them, observe them, study their lives. We all would do well to regularly read some biographies of faithful Christians because to follow in their footsteps is to go God's way. And when we go God's way, our future is peace. The word there is shalom. that word that we translate as simply peace really is a very rich word in the Bible. It doesn't just mean you are absent from war, right? It doesn't just mean that you're not under attack. It means more than that. It means wholeness and completeness. It means to be in a state of favorable circumstances. It means to be the recipient of uh, friendship and affection and the blessings of God. It means to be in a prosperous relationship with the Prince of Peace. That's our future if we go God's way, David promises. Verse 38, but the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Those who reject Jesus Christ will die with this world. We Christians are living for the next world, a city whose builder and maker is God. Verse 39, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. So after all this talk throughout the whole psalm about walking faithfully and doing good and going God's way, David wants to make it clear that godly people cannot do this work on their own. The idea isn't that those individuals who achieve a certain level of righteousness are then recognized by God as worthy of an inheritance. That's not the deal. It's not even that God comes down and gives us some tools to do what he wants us to do and then leaves us to go and save ourselves or improve ourselves or righteous ourselves, right? Self-righteousness is always a bad thing in the Bible. It's never what God wants. Rather, we're told that salvation in all its parts is from the Lord. Moses and Isaiah both said that the Lord has become our salvation. You can't save yourself. You can't righteous yourself. You can't godly yourself. That's the work of God in our lives. Along the way, we're also told that the Lord's pulling double duty. He's not only become our salvation, he's become our strength. He's our strength for living. The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord does all of these things for us. As God works out this salvation in our lives, as he accomplishes the work he began, He's also supplying and empowering us to live according to his commands. And so especially during times of trouble, we're to turn to him and take shelter in him like sheep to their shepherd. That's what David highlights. Of course, we're always to follow the Lord as our shepherd. But David highlights in this verse, he says, hey, especially in the time of trouble, remember, remember, remember that the Lord is your strength, the Lord is your salvation, the Lord is your refuge. Take shelter in him. You know, sheep are dumb animals. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. They need to be led. They're vulnerable and unable to protect themselves. That's why they need a shepherd, someone who is strong and wise, who will lead them and help them and protect them so that they can then grow and be fed and find rest, right? That's what sheep need. Our Lord is our strong, saving shepherd, especially, David says, here in times of trouble. According to one resource, the word trouble here means an oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. I'd say that just about covers all the kinds of troubles we can find ourselves in. Other scholars define it as the narrow, squeezing, constricting parts of life, or the fear associated with the onslaught of an attacking army. And so no matter what size or shape the storm clouds of trouble might be taking in your life, whether it's a firestorm, a snowstorm, a windstorm, a dust storm, the Lord is an ever-present help and is more than adequate refuge for his people. He is the deliverer who brings his strength and his salvation to us when we go to him. Verse 40, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them From the wicked and save them because they trust in him. By the end of the psalm, David assures us that God is our future hope, He is our present hope, He is our only hope. In Him we find shelter, and from Him we've been given a road to walk, His way, the steps that He's ordered for us that way that leads to an everlasting inheritance in glory. As we walk with him and as we keep his way, he does the work of securing our steps and enriching our lives and delighting in us as we delight in him, as he forms us and fashions us to shine like a star in the sky that the world around us might behold his wonderful work and choose to also commit their way to him. Now, before we close, just one more final thought from this psalm. In the last number of weeks that we've been going through these verses, I've pointed out how five times the psalm promises that those who believe will receive an eternal inheritance from God when this life is over. Five times he says, hey, you're gonna inherit the earth, you're gonna inherit the earth again and again and again. But you know, in the psalm, the wicked are once again contrasted with the righteous in this regard. At least five times we are told that those who do not accept Jesus as Lord and Savior face judgment and destruction. He says, you're gonna be cut off. You're gonna be wiped out you're going to be destroyed. There's no other option. There's no third category. There's no other group. David's not saying that every person who doesn't believe is a, uh, you know, a murderer and somebody who's going to go out and do as much evil as they can. But the reality is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The reality is all of us were dead in trespasses and sins and need to be saved. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, you're in the category, not of the righteous, but of the wicked. Maybe you're not as bad as you could be, but you're still not saved. You're still not on the road that leads to eternal life in heaven. You're either saved and born again, the Bible says, or you're not. And if you're not a believer, you are headed for judgment. The Bible promises that, it explains that. This uh, Psalm talks about it again and again you're going to perish and be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. But it doesn't have to be that way. And God doesn't want it to be that way. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He made a way that you can be forgiven of your sins and be made righteous so that he could become your salvation as well. The book of Romans says, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus himself said in Revelation chapter three that he's standing at the door of your heart and that he's knocking and he's waiting for you to let him in. And Romans 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be made righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross on your behalf. That's what the Bible promises. That's what the Bible explains, Do it tonight before it's too late and become one of the righteous with us that David has described in this psalm, amen?